You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. Today we have a guest in studio, Lieutenant Mike Scotto from Ladder 58. Morning, Mike. Good morning, Chief. Today's recording is taking place in studio. We're uh, maintaining a proper social distance. Appreciate you coming down. Your first time guest here. Maybe you could take a minute, give us your biography, where you've been. Okay, well, I got on the job in February of 1979. I was assigned to Engine 18, which is in Greenwich Village, which is now Squad 18. And I transferred to Ladder 157 in Flatbush. And I was promoted out of there in 1997 to Lieutenant. And I was assigned to uh, the 27 Battalion, actually, your battalion, until I was assigned to Ladder 58 in 2000. And I've been there ever since. Just celebrated 20 years in 58 truck? Yeah, just uh, last week, yes. Yeah, congratulations. It's pretty exciting. It's impressive. How you make 40 years, I'm not sure. We'll have to come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But uh, today's topic is top floor fires. You know, it's a broad topic, and maybe we'll just touch on some of the construction features that create the most operational difficulties for us at these type buildings. The H-type. And when we say H-type, those are the larger type multiple dwellings. After a certain period of time in the early 1900s, they started expanding the size of them by adding steel to the building process. And the steel creates a few different problems for us. It gives an avenue of fire travel to the cock loft and a few other operational things. But maybe just touch on a few things about the cock loft and the problems in the larger H-types. In larger H-types, what most firefighters would want to do as they go through their careers to learn how these buildings were constructed and the natural voids and natural problems that were there on design day one. And then they've been changed through renovations. Things have changed. They've moved things around. But the natural voids, natural problems still exist. So with a larger H-type building, your cockloft can be anywhere from like one foot to six feet high. And the amount of wood up there has been there for 50, 60, 70 years. And it's all dry. And it's all dry. And it's just a lumber yard under some tar roof, which may have two or three layers of tar on top of it because it's easy just to tar over a problem and to rip it up and put a new roof down is a cost factor there. And everything we do in the fire service is based on cost factor construction problems. So you'll have a class three building for non-fireproof, non-combustible is probably a better way to put it. You'll have wood, you have channel rails will spread, you have dumbwaiter shafts, so fire can spread. Let's just explain to people what dumbwaiter shafts are. They're usually found in the bathrooms and they basically brought garbage to the basement you would put it there and lower down like a Bathrooms little cart. kitchens. I've seen one recently in the Bronx. It was a dumbwaiter shaft between two apartments. So each apartment, apartment A and apartment B, had access to the same dumbwaiter shaft. So any fire in the shaft that may drop down from a cockwell fire into this shaft, which clearly does happen, fire will drop down. It doesn't just go up. Sure. You can have extension to two separate apartments. Because most of the times they're sealed, they're painted, they're nailed yeah, shut. Yeah, but we have laws that they needed to be sealed, but they still, fire can still enter them. And it is a direct route to the cockloft as right, well. And once it gets up there, it's going to spread in all directions, left, right, back, forth, up, down. It's all six sides of an exposure like we teach when we, when we do classes. We say there's always six sides to every fire. There's all four sides around it and then above and below. So in the cockloft fire, you have the same problem. Yeah. And you have a hot tar roof. When you enter a roof, one of the things we talk about is to check the roof stability upon it going on the roof if you're distant from the fire itself, that should give you an idea of the stability of the roof. As you get closer to where the fire is or above the fire, you may feel the roof change, it may be more springy. Now, if you get on the roof and it's springy and you're distant from the fire, it could be a rain roof of some type and of And let's explain roof. that also. There are two types of roofs, and sometimes the roof boards are attached directly to the joists, and other times we have a name for it. They're called inverted roof, raised roof, rain roof, and that's more of a built-up, roofing system 
to enable the roof to drain more. Correct. And they, they do put double roofs up at that, even not for the rain roof purposes, simply because the roof was so damaged, it was just easier to build a second roof over it, cheaper for the uh, homeowner. Yeah, I mean, and once the fire enters the cock loft, it's, it's, uh, it's really difficult to control. You know, the one advantage we have in this department, and I think you'll agree, we have the, the manpower. We are in, in short order. And really to control or get ahead of a cock loft fire, a fire that's already extending into the cock loft, you need lines and you need hooks on the top floor. It's easier to pull a ceiling than to cut a roof most of the time. You said our advantage is manpower, so other departments don't have that. So what the chief officers are probably thinking is, where is this going to be 15 minutes from now? Not where am I now, because where I am now is what it is. Where is it going to go? And that you know, gives us our trench cuts and operations like that. We try to save a wing of a part or a part of the... Yeah, of we'll a, get into that. We're going to oh, talk about okay. roof construction a little later. Cool, cool. So those are some of the uh, construction features, just to give people a primer. Let's talk about stretching hose lines. And we'll start with, since it's more, there are more difficulties with the age types. We were just talking about a, a multiple alarm we had recently, top floor fire, and we had a single stair in the building around an elevator. I know they used three engines to get that first line into operation. And the importance of the first line into operation can't be emphasized enough. And some of these H-types have deep courtyards, and then you stretch into the top floor. Let's talk a little bit about getting hose lines to the top floor. What are our additional options? Obviously, the stairwell, but then we have some additional options, whether it be you know the rope or the fire escape. Right. Our procedures, like you know, obviously, they don't want two lines up the interior stairs at all possible. And the reason is because they don't want to clog the stairwell and... It makes it difficult if we have to get out. It makes it difficult for civilians to evacuate. That creates a lot of problems, especially around an elevator, narrow, people trying to get out, and we're trying to get up there with the lines. And again, safety becomes an issue too. So the two lines up is a good move. But you can take a second line up if it's a long stretch. If you have two or three engines, an additional engine or whoever could stretch a line up a fire escape on an exposure or on the same building if the building is large enough. Because yeah. H-type buildings in New York City can be, I grew up in Brooklyn, and my building was like a U-shaped. So imagine, you know, 100 apartments per side. It's a, it's a large building. It could be 300 by 200 wide. And some of them have multiple stairways. Not all of them have that single stair. You know, that's single stair is just the worst, though. Yeah, that, that's just the worst-case scenario for us. But sometimes that second or th that third line could just use a different stairwell in the building. Correctly, up the other side, if they can get there safely above the fire and cross over to the roof or operate on the top floor if the stairs are transverse, which means they hit both stairways from the hallways. Yeah, to explain limited. that real quick. We usually have three types of stairs in these H-types, transverse, wing, and isolated stairs. Transverse stairs? It goes from wing to wing, from side to side. So you can go up the A stairway and walk across the fourth stair on the fourth floor to the B stairway. There's no blockage. You have access to both. Yeah, they're the best case scenario for these type operations. Even roof access is affected by those. So those are the best case scenario, transverse stairs. A lot of times that'll be in the SIDS or that'll be an early report from your first two officers. Yeah, in my building in Brooklyn, we had wing stairs. The A side did not reach, so it only does one wing. So if you have two separate sides of the building that are attached, you can't gain access from the A stairway across to the B stairway. You have to go up the B stairway to get the back apartments and up the A stairway to get the front apartments, for example. So that's a difficult thing. You need to know where the fire is and where it's spreading to bring your lines accordingly. The third type, I think it's, the, it's not commonly found of the isolated stairs. You have an individual stairway and goes up and it serves three or four apartments. 
Very few apartments served by that stairway, so it was very difficult. Yeah, it creates problems. For our operations, it would be you'd have to pick that stairway, and then your next stairways you have to go above and over. There's mm -hmm. really no way to gain access to that side yeah. other than that one stairway. And that's where the fire escape stretches come in or a rope out a window, well, pull it up. Let's talk about that because a lot of times engines at those multiple alarms, the officers know they'll show up with, we call it a Clorox bottle. Yes. Well, it's an empty bleach bottle. We've cut and we've hold it. And I've seen other departments, and they put a couple hundred feet of rope in, small rope. Yep. They'll tie it off to the nozzle. They'll throw the bleach bottle out the window. It's not full yeah, of bleach, yeah. clearly. Throw it out to the firefighters in the street. They'll tie it off, and then they'll be able to pull it up to the floor below the fire. And then it can stretch right up, so they'll save a length of a stretch. So if the building is six stories, you're going up five stories, it's 50 feet. It's one length of our hose. If you take it up the interior stairs around that wraparound job we had in the Bronx some, a couple months back, you might have used 16, 17 lengths just to get to the fire floor. We're here, you're shortening the stretch, which means it gets there quicker and you get more water on the fire more rapidly, which is obviously a tactical advantage. I have to say that's preferable over a fire escape stretch just due to the age of some of these fire escapes we deal with these days. Yeah, Been out a, and exposed to the elements for 100 some odd years. Because the, the owners, again, go back to money. They can't afford to fix them, so they just paint them. Yeah. But are they really stable? We had mentioned that earlier that the roof part of the fire, you don't get a lineup on the roof. You know, using the gooseneck might not be your best option because how stable is it? And what do we do before we use a gooseneck? Oh, we always check it, we shake it, make sure it's stable. If there's any kind of uncertainty, we simply just don't use it at that point. Yeah, now as time goes on, the, the fire escapes are something that people really are, have to consider the safety there. Right, and I know companies have used aerial ladders to bring a line to the roof, which is a nice not option. Not ideal, yeah, but, it's not ideal, that, yeah. because it takes one aerial apparatus out of play. Right, you lose that aerial, so that's, you know, if there was no other choice, I, I understand the chiefs are, are bound by that. Listen, we have no other way to get up there. The goosenecks are no good. It's an isolated building, we need to get a line and they have to commit and lose an aerial for their operation. Yeah. But you do need the lines up there, so. And let's talk about that briefly also. Apparatus placement is critical. And let's focus on H-types just because we're on that topic now. You know, wide street, narrow street. Let's talk about first for stretching lines, assuming you're on a narrow street where the engine stops, ideally lining up with the throat and how we, if we have a towel out on a ticket, would like to get it in the throat. Maybe you could talk about that a bit. Okay, well, usually what, what we do in our procedures is the first two engines will go in, and if it is a top floor fire or an upper floor fire, they'll probably drop two lines and go down the block. We call it flying to the hydrant. You drop the line, what you need, three or four lengths of the doorway or whatever, drive the rig to the hydrant, try and get it off the block or as far away as possible to give access to the building. Because the engines carry a 1,000 feet of hose. We only have 95 feet of tower, 75 feet of tower, or 100 foot of aerial. We're limited by sheer design. We can only go so far, so we, trucks do need access to the front, but clearly water is the important thing. We get water on it, things are going to get better. So they drop their two inks, they pull away, they try and get the towel out into the throat of the building, so the throat will be the part between that, it may be like 20, 30 feet wide, and the two wings it's on either like the side. the courtyard? The courtyard, yeah. And it be. could be in various different configurations also. Like, for instance, the one job we're just referring to we were at recently was kind of like a sideways H. The courtyard, you know, if you looked at it from the top, it was an H, but it was flat in the front. There was no courtyard. E-shaped, U-shaped, O-shaped. Yeah, that's where the SIDS comes into play, and hopefully the company's the first to have some sort of battle plan designed. If yeah. we have a fire, A, we do this. Yeah, a lot of times, if we're lucky, we'll have SIDS on these buildings, and SIDS stands for a Critical Information Dispatch System. It's a message we get along with the initial ticket. But when positioning, if you have a top floor fire and you have a towel out, you want to give them what we call the throat, we said the courtyard. If you have a person at a window, with an aerial, you'll use the turntable as your marker to the victim at the window. With the towel, if there is a person showing, you use the bucket as your marker, because the bucket 
When it goes up, it's a shorter walk up. It's quicker, quicker design, you know, gets up there faster. So that's kind of a little bit of a, of a placement thing that if you have a detailed chauffeur from an aerial to a towel ladder, you always review that. I do that with them. So you'll get the towel ladder in the front, which will put the turntable in the front so you can get as much coverage as possible. And an area will go to wherever they, they can possibly go to. Yeah. If two areas are coming in, you're going to position wherever the opposite ends. You want opposite. access from both sides. Right. You want both sides, depending on the on how again how wide the building is. Again, you have a hundred foot of aerial, so you have a lot. But if the building is three hundred feet wide, you don't want to place yourself in the middle because you won't reach either side. Like you said, they'll go to one side. The second one, it will cover the next side over. And now you have at least two definite means to the roof. Our own apparatus, which are guaranteed, will get us up there no problem. Yeah. Especially in an isolated building, that yeah. becomes more important. Well, we talked previously about how manpower intensive these jobs are. The success depends on deploying adequate resources quickly. Walk us through the ladder company operations on the fire floor. Your first do. What are your first priorities? And then walk us through how you progress through the operation. Well, our first priority, obviously, is to locate the fire, depending on which department's in, depending on where the fire is. Extension possibilities, clearly a apartment in the middle of the floor would present more of a problem extension. Fire, uh, and the worst case scenario is a fire in the apartment spanning the throat, right? Exactly, yeah, it's gonna get both sides of the building and it can be a, a little bit of a difficult, right? And generally, the, the larger buildings have a more substantial roof where a commercial occupancy, a taxpayer or a strip mall, the roofs are probably lightweight in newer buildings. So cutting that roof at all is probably a mistake to begin with. But for that, we'll do it from like a bearing wall to a bearing, like I said, and we'll cut it and we'll keep the fire to one side of the building. It's sort of a defensive operation to prevent it from spreading, but we're still doing offensive operations on the floor below. So you'll cut a vent hole above the fire to try and limit its lateral extension. If the fire has already gained hold, the trench is a defensive measure. So what we do is we put an inspection hole 20 feet on one side, 20 feet on the other side, make a little triangle cut using the saw, just three cuts with the saw blade, make a small triangle. And when fire reaches that vent hole on the fire side of the trench, where the fire is, we can pull the trench. It's about three foot wide, or wide enough to step across. And we'll have a line up there to protect the roof operating members, because we don't want to operate a line into a vent hole or into a trench unless fire is coming across. Then we're just going to knock it down. For those type of advanced roof operations, we're going to have a fire sector chief up there supervising, and we're going to have a line plate. Right, and you have, you have the generally offices. stretched via a rope to the roof. Oh yeah, clearly it's going to save time, and you can put in a, a distributor on the roof also. You can use a cockloft nozzle, which is a, a, a good tool. Uh, years ago, we had distributors. We have the Dresden distributor, which I always yeah. thought was a great tool. You just pop it down, hit the floor, pull it up one foot, and then open the nozzle, which is one length back, and the distributor would spin like a top and yeah. throw water everywhere. Cockroach nozzle does pretty much the same thing. It can direct the streams in all directions. It's a tool that's seeing more and more use. It's yeah, it's, it's still a fairly new tool. Again, the distributors were there years ago, and they've come with something a little more practical, they feel, and it has a, a good advantage. It's a nozzle, basically, it's almost like a bent tip, if you will. Mm -hmm. If you ever had water off the side of a rig in a multiple arm, you saw a little nozzle tip there, that's a bent tip. It's basically the same thing. And what you can do is you can insert it into a vent hole or into an inspectional fuel, and you can turn it from side to side, and you can spray water on every angle in every direction, and that will knock down fire, wet the wood, and hopefully limit any further extension. They also do something like that in the Big H in Harlem in the sixth borough, because we do have six boroughs <laughs> in New York City, as we know. Yeah. And Harlem, what they did, I had an officer, a friend of mine, uh, this Lieutenant Timmy Klett, told mm -hmm. me, they get up on the kitchen counters, pop a hole in the kitchen and they have access to the cockloft on a top floor and they would stick a line in there and do basically the same thing from below as another option, especially with top floor fires because extension is your main problem here because you don't want to lose an entire building. Yeah, it really provides a better angle of attack. It does have advantages and it's something to be looked at and used more often. If it helps, uh, use it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we talked about, we generally have success keeping it to a wing. As long as it doesn't start in the throat, span in the wings, I guess the next step in a win in, in a top four fire in an H is confining it to a certain section of the wing. Uh, we had a lot of cockroach flies, a lot of top four flies in the Bronx in the last two years. And part of that, I think, is the uh, materials that they're building, construction your furniture with. It's all petroleum-based products nowadays, and that makes the fire hotter faster. And with the natural voids of channel rails and a little bit of home repair, a little bit of disrepair, a uh, fire gets up in there and it's spreading. It's a higher heat, a more rapid evolving area. And I think that's part of the problem. And again, it's getting into the older wood and spreading. And you have the tar roof, which tar is obviously yeah, yeah. a petroleum-based product. So these things, I think, are adding to the situation yeah. uh, we're having lately. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it's no denying. It's, every other fire seems to be a top-floor fire. Let's get back to it. as a longtime truck officer. I asked the question and I sidetracked you. Let's talk about your operations on the fire floor. And we talked about the importance of designating, as important to the chief in the street, the apartments and how they're designated, because a lot of times that could cause some confusion. Clearly, if, if it's an ABC type, you say, well, Mike, it's, uh, it's apartment 6A, but it might be apartment 5A, because the first floor was ABCD, then the mm -hmm. second floor was 1A, 2A, and so forth. So when you get to the top floor, it's apartment 5A, and the chief may say, isn't this the top floor? And you go, yes, the apartment is 5A, yeah. for example. Yeah. So that can throw people off. They, they, they numbers incoming units here, 5A, but they're saying top floor fire. Yeah, it's, it's, it could be tricky. Sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't. Sometimes the smoke conditions preclude you from even getting it early in the operation. But either way, you locate the, the apartment. Let's just uh, go. Yes, yeah, so we locate the fire apartment. We force entry. We make our search, try to locate and confine the fire if possible by closing any doors to the rooms. Uh, you know, that might be a bedroom that we have a door on it. We do our search for life. The members above on the roof, our roof firefighter, he's trying to locate the fire. He's going to make an initial vent hole. He's going to try and find, oh, about five or six feet back from the wall, the exterior wall. They'll go back and put a hole that will try and take in two rooms. And the way they can see this, by looking over the edge, he sees where the windows are, and he tries to go in between them. So this way, he will limit lateral extension by putting that vent hole right over it. It will pull the fire up and slow it down. You're still going to have some. the best case scenario, really. Like when we talked about limiting it to a section of the, of the wing is that, getting that first hole in the right position. And it takes two saws to adequately cut one fast enough directly over. But again, talk about some tips you would give to a roof firefighter trying to find the exact place to cut that first hole. In the FDNY, the roof firefighter will do a perimeter search, check roof stability when they get on the roof, and obviously the first thing they'll do right of that is to find a second means of egress should conditions worsen and they can't get back to their first. So say they come up an exposure, the building next door, and they can't get back to that, how am I getting off this roof? Or if they came off a ladder or out of a towel ladder bucket and they can't get back to it, where the, the roof collapses or the fire gets out of control and they have to move the ladder for one reason or another, they have to know how to get off that roof. So they're going to get there, they're going to survey the roof, they're going to listen to transmissions from below, they're going to use the smoke as an indicator clearly. If wind is blowing, that can be a problem, they may not be able to see clearly, but they have to listen to guidelines from below, what's going on, what side we're on. As we give the information to Chief for outside, we'll give the Chief the apartment number, the location of the fire as we know it, and clearly a search, a primary search for life, and hopefully that will guide the roof firefighter to the position they got to be. My outside vent firefighter will be still coming in off the fire escape. Yeah. I like that because life is the first priority. So I, I always make sure they want to come in off that fire escape. For top floor fires, they team up too to assist with the roof cut. But we're, you know, we're just talking in general. It could be right. second do, third do. Right. You can you have different things. So that's what they can do as a, as a first do truck to find the fire. And if we have extension, I'll notify the second do truck. This way they can go to the apartment that's initially adjoining it if fire is on that side because that's going to be the most severe exposure. 
and then they'll do those searches accordingly. And that, that's pretty much how we operate. Yeah, so, okay, so now the fire is knocked down and the search for extension begins. And an H-types are, are tricky. There are so many avenues to get the fire into the cockloft. Let's talk about how you would begin as the first and second do. I know you talk about making examination holes with the butt end of the hook. Just maybe explain how the search for extension starts. Right. If you're going to check for extension in a cockroach fire, if you have a good fire condition and it's not just a couple of couches going, it's the room going mm -hmm. and the structure is on fire, not just the contents, you take the back of the hook, you turn the hook around, you invert it, and use the back to poke a small circular hole. You want to do this from a doorway. So if there's a cockroach explosion or there's fire and it blows down on you, you will not be trapped in the room. You can even do it in a closet sometimes. Open up a closet door, poke a hole inside a closet. If it blows in the closet, you can shut the door. It's just another option. And that's a safety issue for the members. We don't want anybody caught standing in the middle of a room, pulling a ceiling, and the ceiling blows down on them. And now we have one of our members trapped, and nobody wants that ever. And that could become, uh, make a bad situation worse, clearly. Yeah, and while we're on the topic of closets, we talk about the steel beams, right? And a lot of times, you know, any boxed out section is where we go to search for extension. And a lot of times the builders hid those in closets. That's why it's uh, an avenue uh, of fire travel. And right, and it's aesthetic purposes. They hide them behind something so it doesn't look bad for the people. It's all nice and square, but really behind it is different, which is another issue with the older buildings. When you're pulling down, you have lath and plaster walls. Lath and plaster is small pieces of wood nailed onto the wooden beams, covered furring with strips, a, furring strips. strips. Yeah, that was, yeah. I, well, thank you. <laughs> See, I remember some things that were in the box. Yeah, I, I just, I, when I got on, we had horses and fried on furring strips. But you have the furring strips and you have a wire mesh and then you have the, the plaster on it. Well, years ago, the plasters were the Michelangelo's of the construction industry. Carpenters were not as good as they are now. since They didn't have to make their beam straight because the, the plaster would just make it smooth. Well, that lath and plaster weighs about 10 pounds on a one square foot. So it's a lot of weight. So when you're pulling this down, if we said from the safety, you, you mm -hmm. poke a hole from the doorway. If this thing falls down, it's not a sheetrock ceiling fall on you. It's hundreds and hundreds of pounds of plaster and stuff, and you, you can be killed or injured severely, and maybe we can't get to you. So that's the, the main reason for that safety. Sheetrock, when you pull it off, as you know, Chief, you pull it down, it's towards the hinges, hinges like some sure. of the things, so it can hit you in the face, which is like an ouch, but you're probably not going to get killed or trapped by it. But the lath and plaster is the issue in the older buildings for us. So whenever you're checking for extension, remember, Behind the left and plaster is all kinds of wood. Fire drops down as well as goes up. So a top floor fire, any of those channel rails that are hidden, we need to check the terminal point yeah. in the basement levels because fire can drop down and ignite a basement fire and people think, oh, it's just smoke, it's just from the fire above. No, we want to check lower levels. It's just a safety, a smart move to do. Most times it's not an issue, but if it becomes an issue, you don't want to be behind that curveball. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about now you're in the phase where we're open up trying to define the extent of the fire in a cockloft, and ideally creating a, a line where we could drive that back to its origin instead of having it spread throughout. So again, the, we should also emphasize the importance of not expanding a hole without having a, a hose line present. Exactly. When you find fire in a cockloft, if you poke a hole in the ceiling and you find fire, you call for hand line. There's no more opening up. Wait for the line to come. Realize the fire is still spreading in the cockloft. We understand that, but now it will not be spreading into the apartments, which can, you know, trap or injure any civilians we have not found or endanger members that are operating up there. Yeah, it might be a good time to start doing some venting. Use of examination hole, is that what you do normally with your members? Yeah, we'll vent. If we, you know, we're going to vent. If there's no line there, we may hold off. But if we can isolate the fire into one room, we'll take out the windows in the other room. So yeah. it's a natural vent, and we get a little bit of time. We can see what's going on. If anyone is trapped, that time we're buying them by getting some fresh air in there, 
you know, can make the difference for some people, yeah. especially children, people they hide in the weirdest places. Yeah. So those are the things we, have, we concern ourselves with as a first two truck, fire and fire if possible. And if there's no door on the room that's on fire, what we do teach, you know, I teach education day, we take a door off another hinge so the members can put it and, you know, sort of put a cork in the bottle so it buys us more time for a line to get up there. Well, all we're trying to do is delay the extension. So that's why premature ventilation or premature opening up of ceilings and stuff can spread the fire prior to the line's arrival, and then that makes things worse. Yeah. I know in your, your training, I was reading through some of your notes, we talk about cutting with the wind at your back if possible. What about a change in direction? A member who loses his orientation on the roof, what, what would you recommend? Like, say they're temporarily blinded by smoke. Well, I tell the members when we train up in 58, what to do is you get down, stop moving, get on your knees, let the smoke blow, see what's going on, and listen for sounds. You might hear a saw going off in the direction to the right of your left. That can be your head towards that. Using your tool swinging in front of you like a blind person would use a cane. Mm -hmm. They're not cutting wheat down. I've seen members do that where they swing like they're cutting wheat. So I tell them, make sure the tool is on the ground as you're crawling and you're banging, sounding the roof, making sure you have a stable roof in front of you or a support system because you don't want to go yeah. fall into a hole and now you've made uh, a bad situation worse again. So we tell them to wait a few seconds, listen to sounds, and use their bearing walls. Use like a parapet wall, wall. Try and get back to that wall like you would in a room. When you're searching a room, you use the walls because the walls have one thing in common. All walls and rooms on upper floors have windows and doors on them. So if you're on the wall, you're gonna find a window or a door. So if you're lost on the roof, the same thing, find the wall, it's gonna lead you to something. It's not walking in the middle of the ocean yeah, type of mentality. Sure. Yeah, at least it gives you some type of orientation. Who knows, they may see you in the street or. Right, and if they can get a look at the sunlight, mm -hmm. if it's daytime, I mean, obviously that would be an advantage. Maybe where's the sun? If you're like a little bit of a Magellan type of firefighter, always going to eat, right? You can do that. But anything that might give you an education. So like when we put those aerials up and uh, to the roof, mm -hmm. we would go at least five feet above. Right. And the reason for that is it's an easier access to get off the ladder onto the roof. But it's also a visual point. A visual any kind of, you may see the ladder above the smoke or through the smoke. At night. At night, right there. And that's it's an advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, you have such such good information and so much experience. Again, I want to congratulate you on your 20 years in 58 truck <laughs> and your 40 years in department. It's so impressive yes, to me. Sir. Seriously, how, how do you get to it? 40 years is rarefied air on this job anyway, but you're making 40 years and you're still in the field. I mean, there's 58 truck, they're over, got to be over 4,000 runs a year. Yeah, we're about 4,000. We're about 4,000 runs a year, actually. I mean, yes. how do you do it? What are your secrets? That's no secret. You know, I think it's just a matter of, for me, part of it, a great part of it is the love of the job and the love of coming to work with the, the members I work with, all the members in the FDNY that I've worked with over the years and I've met. I just love coming to work. For the few little bit of time I have left, the next year and a half, two years I have left, I'm going to keep coming until I can't do it anymore. I just, I just love it. It's just simple. It's that simple. I just love what I do. Uh, you don't have to say it. <laughs> like yeah. I said, you're, preaching to the you're choir. Forty here. years, and you're, uh, you're still out there, and uh, it's super impressive. We appreciate you taking the time to come down here and share your knowledge. I'm glad to hear you're gonna be around another year and a half, two years, because well, maybe we'll uh, get you down here for a different topic and uh, talk about something else. Yeah, it would be an honor. Thank you. I appreciate it, Chief. I'm your host, Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. For more training and information from our subject matter experts, go to FDNYPro.org. FDNY Pro is online at FDNYPro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, 
365 days a year. And when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us, to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to FDNYFoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.